Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, what major issues are waiting for state lawmakers at the Capitol when they return from the Easter Passover break? A local focus on teen suicide awareness and pelican migration to Minnesota. But first, prior to the long-awaited Mueller report coming out late this week, the president visited Minnesota earlier in the week to tout positive impacts of his tax cuts and the economy. Today is tax day that we're (laughs) celebrating, okay? Tax day. So, uh, and... We're getting historic tax relief. That's the good part. Historic. President Trump hosted a roundtable discussion at Nuss Trucking in Burnsville where he said he was right when he promised his tax cuts would be rocket fuel for the American economy. State Democrats like Minnesota House Speaker Melissa Hortman, however, disagreed and said the cuts benefited corporations and the wealthy to a very large extent, massive tax cut for corporations. Um, And in contrast, the plan that the Minnesota House DFL and Governor Walls have put forward is about leveling the playing field. Outside of Nuss Trucking, prior to the president's arrival, the street was lined with supporters and opponents. A few days earlier, Trump had tweeted a video with images from the 9-11 attacks alongside comments Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar had made about civil rights of Muslims in America since then. After the tweet, Omar sent out a news release saying she had seen an increase in death threats. Asma Mohammed from Minneapolis is Muslim and an Omar supporter. It's unfair that there are other people who are speaking out and are not feeling like the same kind of heat and facing the same kind of aggression from the president, from other people in her own state. So we're here to show her that we love her, we support her, and we don't want her to die. But Eric from Burnsville agreed with Trump's tweet and said... She is out of control, especially uh, the quip she mentioned about 9-11. It was disgraceful. And Minnesota GOP chair Jennifer Carnahan said as someone who's received death threats herself, she sympathizes with what Omar is going through, but Carnahan added, Maybe she should stop stepping on a hornet's nest and using inflammatory language, you know, and quit pushing a narrative out there that gives people the reason to believe she's anti-American. Trump later told a local reporter that he did not regret sending the tweet. Though he didn't mention Omar directly during the roundtable discussion, the president did occasionally veer off topic to cover other issues. His introductory comments addressed the massive fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. It's one of the uh, great treasures of the world, uh, the greatest artists in the world. Probably, if you think about it, I would say it might be greater than almost any museum in the world. And it's burning very badly. It looks like it's burning to the ground. Later in the discussion, Trump trumpeted his presidential successes and made a plug for the 2020 election. These things don't happen by accident, and it can all go away very quickly. You put the wrong people in office. (laughs) Everything that I've done or we've done as a group, we have some great, really tremendously talented people, and everything that we've done can be undone, and bad, bad things can happen. On a more local note, Trump took a jab at the state Democrats who are opposed to a new Enbridge Line 3 pipeline in the northern part of the state. 
We're working with your local government, who unfortunately is opposing us and you on this. The pipeline, you know about the pipeline and the pipelines. Very important that we get that approved. I think it's something that will bring down your costs and bring down the costs for the whole country. For some reason, uh, Democrats don't like pipelines. Opponents of the new pipeline say there are environmental and cultural concerns. The president wrapped up his talk with this message. I will just tell you, Minnesota, I'm with you a thousand percent, not a hundred, but a thousand percent. And I think you would say, even Minnesota would say, more importantly, I'm with this country a thousand percent, okay? Because we love our country. That's a recap of the president's visit to Minnesota. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The state capitol has been relatively quiet this week with lawmakers on the Passover Easter break. But when they get back next Tuesday, they have less than a month to wrap up the state budget before the May 20th deadline. With substantial differences between Republicans and Democrats, the question is, how does that happen? Eminem's Bill Werner asked the two most powerful people in Minnesota government. Scott, let's set aside all the rhetoric. Democrats arguing that the state needs to make investments to keep Minnesota's economy strong. Republicans responding investments really means tax increases, which they say will just worsen the coming economic slowdown. Put all that aside and focus on the nuts and bolts. Namely, what kind of deal could Republicans and the governor cut so the legislature can finish by the May 20th deadline? There are three major policy areas that have significant spending and therefore possible tax implications in the state budget. E-12 education is the first and foremost. Not to dismiss it out of hand in our discussion, but state lawmakers in the past have most times been able to hammer out some sort of a compromise on funding public education because there's absolutely intense political pressure surrounding it. That leaves two other major issues this legislative session, health care and transportation, which Governor Walls and Republicans have quite different stances on. Let's begin with health care and this question of Senate GOP Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. Can you make any progress on this, this session with such stark differences between the two sides? Well, we have to make progress. And what I would say is I don't think anywhere in the country do we have uh, government-run health care for all. And so we can continue on the path that we're on, that uh, you know Minnesota has, uh, if not the best, among the best health care in the whole world. Do I think it can get better? I do, which is why we've passed uh, a number of ways to drive down the cost of care 
care or to increase access. And so that's a goal we can all shoot for, and so that will be where my aim will be. Republicans are also pushing hard for another round of what's called reinsurance. That's the state kicking in money for health coverage costs for the most seriously ill to hold down everyone else's premiums. Reinsurance basically stabilized the private market. Uh, for the last two years, health insurance rates went down. Uh, they're, protected, or they're projected to go down again this year as a result of reinsurance. And it sounds like we're going to have more people uh, providing health care in, in all 87 counties. I don't want to ask you at this stage of the session because we're, we're light years away from a global agreement as it used to be termed. But as far as you're concerned, does reinsurance have to be in that? Uh, we passed reinsurance off the Senate floor, and if they don't want it, uh, they're going to have to figure out a different solution because what's going to happen is it will destabilize the market, rates will go up for farmers and small business owners, uh, and that would, I think, be a big mistake. I don't support the government's one-care plan, but they said they won't even be ready for that for another three years. One care is Governor Walz's proposal to allow any Minnesotan, regardless of income, to buy health insurance through state-run Minnesota Care. That is something Republicans strongly oppose. Short of enacting One Care, could some deal be cut? We asked the governor. Is it possible that uh, that you might be able to convince them to give you some temporary extension of the health care access fund? You give them reinsurance kind of as a bridge with some sort of assurance that um, uh, that, that, that the one care program can can get some traction I, I mean I, I'm not asking you to reveal your strategies but is no. that a possibility well, that I we think get Minnesotans some- are thinking that way and again we're starting to you know not really seeing a lot of details from the Republicans yet I think when I look at the health care piece of this I think it's important to separate several things from this first of all the health care access fund that's a 27 year old program that insures 43% of Minnesota's children, about 1.1 million Minnesotans. I look at that as an absolute necessity, and I stated it earlier. I, I know Minnesotans care, all Minnesotans and my Republican legislators. They know they can't let this expire. I, I get that. And so, Would you be willing, under the situation, given how adamant they are about reinsurance, to do a temporary extension of the Health Care Access Fund, at least to, you know, you know, things moving. one of the things on the health care access fund is that the history of this, again, 27 years, it's worked, it's brought down uninsured rate, it's done all that. Um, I think a lot of cans have been kicked down the road. I'm going to permanently remove the sunset. I don't want another governor, Republican or Democrat, having to deal with this because it's so foundational it gets us into this point. I think you deal with that. And then we come to the next question is dealing with the individual market. That's where reinsurance comes in. I would argue those two things are separate. And then I would argue that the third piece of this is the long-term fix. We have the immediate fix of the health care access fund. We have the near-term fix on reinsurance or subsidy support that I'm advocating for that I think makes more sense to go right to the people. And then there's a more long-term approach, which is one care to try and get a public option. Let's move on to transportation, where Governor Walls says a gas tax increase is essential to adequately repair and upgrade Minnesota's roads and bridges. Republicans say no gas tax increase 
take the money from elsewhere in the state budget. Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. I think we're in a good spot with transportation, period, just because of what we did two years ago. And and if we really want more to get out of session, uh, then we can consider bonding money for transportation. Uh, we, hi- we did Highway 252, Highway 14, and Highway 23 doing that uh, the last two years. So we're open to that. Uh, but beyond that, we don't need any more in transportation. Governor Wall says... I'm not opposed to bonding as a piece of this, but I'm not going to go down the road Ohio did, where Ohio shifted away from a gas tax. They bonded. um, They took money from the general fund. And now you have a Republican governor coming back and saying that was disastrous to our finances. And he's proposing an 18 and a half cent gas tax. The most, I would argue, one of the most conservative Republican governors. We asked the governor if a gas tax increase ends up being the stumbling block in this year's budget negotiations. How about dropping it for now, let the roads deteriorate further and go on the 2020 campaign trail? And Democrats can go out and make the case and say, well, look what happened. I mean, we need to have control of both chambers Boy, here. Would, and then you do what you want to do in after the, the 2020 I, election. I mean, is that a... I hear this. No, not for me, because first of all, I will lose an election before I will allow our roads to deteriorate. I will not allow them to say, look at this, because I sometimes see this. Let's do this, let it fail and blame it on them. I had somebody say that... Um, I heard this, that they said, well, let's just not do reinsurance and let Walls own the, the increases in insurance rates. And I said, what a terrible thing to say. I will own the issue of health care. If you give me control to help fix this, I'm glad to take it over. But the idea for political, you know, pieces on that is, is certainly not one I'm willing to do. And that, Scott, hopefully gives us a little idea of how the pieces are linked together as Republicans And Governor Walls and his Democratic colleagues try to reach a deal on the state budget by May 20th. Otherwise, it's a special session or even partial state government shutdown. And of course, as we've learned over the years, no talk of local government is complete unless we mention a potential special session or government shutdown. Thanks for that report, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A nonprofit aimed at teen suicide awareness and prevention has launched a nationwide support system for schools, churches, and youth organizations to help better handle the aftermath of traumatic situations that could impact kids and teens. Reporter J.W. Cox details the new crisis support team network. Thanks, Scott. I spoke with Clark Flatt and Dr. Michael Genovese about the epidemic of teen suicides across the nation and the importance of recognizing the effects trauma of all types can have on young people. Dr. Genovese sees all sides of teen suicide from the mental and the physical as the chief medical officer for Acadia Health. The issue became a personal one for Flat, meanwhile, when his son Jason committed suicide at age 16. That led him to start the Jason Foundation. Suicide now is the second leading cause of death in our nation, but not only in our nation. When you look at Minnesota, uh, when the 10 to 24-year-olds, suicide is the second leading cause of death there also. When you look at the middle and high school age group in Minnesota, ages 12 to 18, suicide is the first leading cause of death. So this is something that we've got to work on prevention, the crisis support team uh, that we have done in partnership with Acadia. Uh, is so very important that when these tragic things happen, such as a suicide or a suicide attempt, or other traumatic type of events like an auto accident or, or a natural disaster, that these school administrators and counselors will have a sounding board, a professional sounding board to go to to help them navigate through those times. 
what are some of the traumas and things that, that people might not think about as far as school-age children and what they encounter every day that might be outside of the mainstream and eye-catching things that, that kids might have to deal with? People think of the major traumas that happen that affect people that make the news, but there are lots of things that can happen in school like bullying or neglect, um, all sorts of things that students can find traumatizing that we might not necessarily recognize as traumatizing to them. So it's really incumbent upon us to understand that what might be mildly disconcerting to Clark could be horribly traumatic to me, and we need to respond accordingly. Clark, when it comes to, to foundations like yours, what, what's in the toolbox for you to use and for you to help schools and individuals use that deal with students on a day-to-day basis to help kind of mitigate the effects of some of that trauma and maybe even avoid some of that trauma? Well, you know, the, the avoidance is, is our first and primary hope. Uh, and the Jason Foundation, we provide programs for young people. Uh, they see the changes in their friends many times way before anybody else. We have programs that will take educators, our teachers, not to make them counselors, but to provide them information, tools, and resources to help them better recognize when a student uh, might be struggling with thoughts of uh, suicide or to assist a student who many times will come up to a teacher and say, listen, I'm, I'm having some thoughts I don't want to deal with and I need help. And then we also have parent programs that will deal with how parents can be involved. It's really addressing those issues around youth suicide through the peers and, and the educators. Prevention is our first choice. Dr. Genevieve, how do doctors kind of get involved and try and get to the, that prevention part of things, too? One of the things to keep in mind is that trauma is not an acute event that's self-limited and ends. It, it can be chronic. So if we can recognize some warning signs, some people will say, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling hopeless, uh, I'm feeling like life isn't worth living. Other people might not show such overt signs. It may be more subtle. So some of the things that we can be looking for as parents, I'm a parent myself, would be things like changes in academic performance, changes in appetite, in sleeping patterns, loss of interest in things that really used to entertain them. You know, you might think of a, a soccer player who doesn't want to go to practice anymore or girl who really enjoyed playing the guitar but won't pick it up anymore. These subtle things can be uh, the catalyst for a conversation that, if done in a non-judgmental and non-threatening way, lead to appropriate intervention with qualified medical personnel. Clark, as, as we bring it around to the crisis support team again, what does that look like when a crisis support team comes in and, and helps out in a school setting, say, uh, you know, for example, in a community somewhere in Minnesota? What would that look like? What they do is, they, especially those who are counselors, school administrators, people who work in youth organizations or churches, should they have a traumatic event, they fill out a short form about uh, how to contact them and a very brief description of what happened. What's going on? What do you need help with? We then find through our network with Acadia one of our clinical uh, professionals who can address that type of trauma, and we assign that person to them. They will get in touch with that contact at that school or youth organization or church, then help them. They'll be that sounding board. They'll provide that resources. They'll, be, they'll provide that uh, insight on, okay, how, what things should you be doing right now? What are some of the things you should stay away from or avoid? you know, and, and help to find resources in their local area. We will help direct those people to the resources they need. To piggyback off that, how do you hope this program can help serve smaller communities where maybe resources are tight? 
you just named what, what we're targeting at. Even though we'll help any school or church, it's the rural schools, the, uh, the middle-sized schools that so many times are under, underfunded or under-resourced to address these, uh, and it could be limited personnel. We want to be that sounding board. We want to let that person know they're not alone. They're not facing this trauma. They're not facing this weight of what should I do to help the family, the student body, uh, the community. Uh, we want to be there and help them through those steps. So we take away that feeling of being alone. We'll provide them a team that will help them through that. Genevieve and Flat both underscored the fact that suicide is a 100% preventable death. But the battle to do that requires the right tools, awareness, and perseverance. If you or your organization could use the help of a crisis support team, visit jasonfoundation.com slash CST. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, aunt, son. Learn fast, F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911, F-A-S-T, face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of... Your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on, because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother... Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The American White Pelican is making a comeback to Minnesota, not only for the season, but also in terms of its population. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. While pelicans winter in the Gulf of Mexico region, a high number of the birds take up summer residence right here in Minnesota. Marsh Lake, Lacquaparo, and Swift counties host the largest portion of the population. Joining me now to talk about this unique bird is the DNR's Lisa Galvin Inver. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the pelican to Minnesota. Pelicans actually follow the ice out for migration, so uh, depending on the year, they may actually start arriving somewhere about the maybe the third week in March. So, you know, the the snows, some of them had arrived, but some of them have been delayed. But they're they're starting, you know, they're, they're, they've either arrived where they're going to be nesting or some of them are continuing uh, further northward. We also have, in addition to those that breed here, we also have groups of non-breeding pelicans. So that was uh, part of what we were asking about was if people, citizens, could help us identify the areas where they're actually nesting or breeding. Um, historically, uh, this uh, pelicans uh, ranged through uh, out uh, parts of uh, uh, North America, particularly kind of in the upper Midwest and, and into the Great Plains. Um, but for uh, many years, we lost them, um, probably due to a variety of causes, habitat loss, disturbance, uh, they're also fish-eating birds, so the same things that were affaffecting eagles, like with DDT, uh, assuredly affected them. 
but uh, with uh, habitat conser- conservation and protection, uh, they certainly are making a comeback. They're um, a species of special concern in the, in Minnesota, but more importantly, they're a, a stewardship species for us. Uh, we have, for the prairie pothole uh, region of the United States, about uh, 20% or so of, of that population uh, occurs within... Uh, in its breeding or during its breeding season in Minnesota, so we have a special responsibility for them. And you know, you know that a lot of people just enjoy watching them. Well, and that's that's what I was going to say. They have a very uh, distinct, uh, a very distinct look. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah. I mean, it's on one hand when you look up against a blue sky, that the they look very graceful. You know, sailing through the air, uh, soaring. Um, but up close, they they almost have sort of a prehistoric, some people say, kind of pterodactyl look. They've got that big orange pouch and very distinctive pelican profile. Um, so uh, both beautiful and, and amusing. Um, we've been seeing a lot of posts uh, across uh, various social media, uh, people, you know, commenting about how much they enjoy uh, seeing the pelicans every year, sort of a, a sign of spring. And, you know, speaking of a sign of spring, is there one area of the state uh, where we tend to see pelicans more so? To be honest, I'm most familiar in my region, uh, which is a, a south-central and southwestern part of the state. Uh, at least down here, where we see them most is uh, in our shallow lakes, uh, which in a way are more like they're, they're they're different in character than more like the Northwoods lakes. They're they're more like deeper marshes, so those uh, shallow uh, fertile lakes um, that uh, that have the fish that they need to forage on. And as far as breeding, it's not a hundred percent, but they almost exclusively nest on islands. And as you can imagine, that's for protection. They nest on the ground, so islands uh, are in kind of short supply. So if you have that mix of shallow lakes. With, with islands, uh, those those make good places for them to breed. But like any of the uh, you know the colonial water birds, they tend to uh, to roam to forage widely. So they may uh, may actually be um, uh, seeking you know fish uh, fishing opportunity in a variety of of uh, sort of satellite uh, satellite uh, shallow wetlands and, and shallow lakes. All right. And when we talk about uh, uh, nesting, I mean, obviously people love to get as close as they can, uh, but is there any uh, good rule of thumb when it comes to pelicans? Well, you know, pelicans, when they're nesting, are actually quite sensitive. Um, the the uh, eggs, you know, when they hatch, the young are, are hatched naked. They don't have any uh, feathers to protect them. So the parents really need to shelter them. And you know, if you think about, you know, those sort of cold, you know, uh, sleety weather we've had lately, it doesn't take very long for that to cause egg death or a death of the young. So we, we want to make sure that that uh, we're not too close and really using the, the pelican's behavior, how they're, if they're responding to us, we're too close. Well, that's a fun information and very knowledgeable. Uh, anything else that you wanted to add today, Lisa, that I didn't hit on? I would say is when you talk about the you know the history too. We know that there there is a, a long history of uh, pelicans in Minnesota, evidenced by so many of the place names, lakes and towns, uh, and so forth that have pelican in their name or 
in the case of, for instance, like Lake Shatek, which is uh, the Ojibwe word for for uh, for pelican, is Shatek. So um, they've they've been here for a long time. They've made a comeback uh, through conservation efforts of. Uh, the DNR, in particular, the Non-Game Wildlife Program and uh, Shallow Lakes Program and the, and the wildlife areas. And so by working together, uh, we can continue to have pelicans and, and other wi- abundant wildlife in Minnesota. Thanks again to my guest, the DNR's Lisa Gelvin in Vare. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.